kind of visit each year for the past five years. A prophet was someone who spoke the words of God. It was someone that God spoke through to deliver his messages to his people, to whoever he wanted to communicate with. And thus, through the prophets, we get a glimpse of God's heart. We get a glimpse of his character, a better understanding of who he is and, and what he's like. Uh, last week, uh, as we saw, uh, throughout the Old Testament, uh, God establishes a very special and unique relationship with, with Israel. He chooses them, loves them, blesses them, rescues them, protects, provides, guides. He reveals himself as, his, as their God, and he establishes them as his people. And his desire, his expectation is that they would in return do the same, that they would see him as their God, and that they would view themselves as his people, that they would love him, worship him, serve him, be faithful, loyal, devoted. And the obvious implication, which is also clearly commanded, is that he would be their only God and that they would belong to only him. In Exodus chapter 20, uh, verses 2 to 5, it says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. So he says, you shall have no other gods, which is pretty self-explanatory as to why. But he also says you can't even create an image of himself or anything in heaven above or on earth below. In other words, there can be no substitute, no matter how well-intentioned, for him whatsoever. No matter how good the object might be, there can be nothing that gets in the way of the worship and the honor and the glory and the service that is reserved for him. Yet what we see, right, despite how clearly communicated this is, what we see throughout Israel's history, what we see in the Old Testament is their inability and their unwillingness to keep this one command. Right? They are constantly, consistently turning away from God and chasing other idols, creating images and serving other gods. In Exodus chapter 32, Moses, soon after God delivered Israel out from Egypt, Moses is up on Mount Sinai, he's meeting with God, he's receiving instruction, but the meeting's running a little long. Moses is running late. The people get a little anxious, so they decide to create for themselves some idols, a golden calf. Verses 1 to 4, it says, when the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. Aaron answered them, Take off the gold earrings from your wives, your sons, your daughters are wearing, and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. In Numbers 25, uh, Israel, they're still out in the wilderness. It's a new generation, but it's the same old habits. Uh, verses 1 to 3, when Israel, while Israel was staying in Shittim, 
the men began to indulge in sexual immorality with Moabite women, who invited them to the sacrifices to their gods. The people ate the sacrificial meal and bowed down before these gods. So Israel yoked themselves to the Baal of Peor. Fast forward, despite Israel's unfaithfulness, God brings them into the promised land, gives them a, a land to call their own, a place to call home, a space to enjoy a relationship with him, yet they continue to turn away, chase after other idols, other gods. Ezekiel 20, 28 says, When I brought them into the land, I had sworn to give them, and they saw any hill or any leafy tree, there they offered their sacrifices, made offerings that aroused my anger, presented their fragrant incense, and poured out their drink offerings. Right? God says, anytime they saw a hill or a leafy tree, they offered an offering to a, another god, to an idol. Right? And this pattern, this behavior, this heart would consistently reveal itself throughout the monarchy, throughout the divided kingdom, throughout Israel's history. And it's this heart and this attitude towards God that God eventually addresses through many of the prophets. And one of the prophets that he clearly communicates his feelings about is through the prophet Hosea. Now Hosea was one of the minor prophets. He was a prophet to the northern kingdom around the 8th century B.C. And God not only speaks through Hosea through words, but through specific instructions, that in a sense Hosea's life would be an object lesson to Israel. Hosea chapter 1, verses 1 to 2, it says, The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, son of Berai, during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and during the reign of Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, king of Israel, when the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, Go, marry a promiscuous woman, and have children with her, for like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. So God tells Hosea to go marry a promiscuous wife. Some older translation says a woman of harlotry or a woman of whoredom. And he says, marry a woman like this, because this is what it's like to be in a relationship with Israel. And what God is making abundantly clear is that idolatry is spiritual adultery against the Lord. To turn to other gods, to worship them, to serve them, to acknowledge them is like a spouse choosing to have an affair. And you can see or understand why God would, would hate this, why God cannot tolerate this or, or stand it. And because of it, God declares through Hosea that there will be consequences to this kind of heart, this kind of living. In other words, what God will say is if you want to experience life apart from him, then God's about to give them a season of life apart from him. Now look what he says uh, in verses 3 to 9. It says, Hosea, so he married Gomer, daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. Then the Lord said to Hosea, Call him Jezreel, because I will soon punish the house of Jehu for the massacre at Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of Israel. In that day I will break Israel's bow in the valley of Jezreel. 
Gomer conceived again and gave birth to a daughter. Then the Lord said to Hosea, Call her Lo-Ruhamah, which means not loved, for I will no longer show love to Israel, that I should at all forgive them. Yet I will show love to Judah, and I will save them not by bow, sword, or battle, or by horses and horsemen, but I, the Lord their God, will save them. After she had weaned Lo-Ruhamah, Gomer had another son, then the Lord said, call him Lo-Ami, which means not my people. For you are not my people, and I am not your God. Right, so God is foretelling punishment and judgment. Now in the, immediate next, in the next verse, God is going to offer hope and promise grace, demonstrating the heart of God. But before things get better, he says things are going to get hard. And the way God communicates this is through the names of Hosea's children. He says, name your son Jezreel, which was a famous battle site in Israel, signifying bloodshed, vengeance, a massacre that took place, will take place. He says, name your second child, not loved. Because I'm about to show Israel what it's like to not receive my love. He says, name your third child, not my people. Because I'm about to show them what it's like to, to be not my people. Now what Hosea's household family dynamics was like when you name your kid not loved and the other one not my kid, that's a different sermon for another day. But what God is making abundantly clear to Israel is that there will be consequences for their heart of idolatry. You want to turn to serve other gods? Well, I'm about to give you to other gods for a season. Now, it's, it's hard to, to read through Israel's journey, to, to watch them from a distance, and to not think to yourself, like, why? You know, like, like, how? Like, why can you not be faithful to God? Like, how do you experience all that you experience? How do you see all that you see, yet still feel the urge, the compulsion to serve these other gods? I mean, did they just love church so much that one religion wasn't enough? You know, they just loved singing and praise and dance so much that they needed more gods to sing to. You know, were they so wealthy and so generous that tithing to one god just wasn't cutting it? They needed to tithe more. Or like, what was it that just drove them to these, these idols, these other gods? And you see, what we have to, to, to recognize is that Israel, they didn't just wake up one morning believing in only one God, and then all of a sudden decided for themselves, we're going to believe in these other gods. See, for most of Israel, they had always believed in other gods. Abraham grew up in a family that served multiple gods. Much of Israel early on went to Egyptian schools 
where they learned about all the Egyptian gods. They were immersed in a world that revolved around these other gods. That your well-being, that your livelihood was dependent on how you interacted with these gods. So if you wanted to have a successful farm, you wanted a good harvest, healthy livestock, then you need to appease the gods of weather, the gods of agriculture. You wanted love, romance, a fulfilling sex life, you need to appease the, the gods of, of love and romance. You wanted to have kids, healthy kids, strong kids, a bunch of kids to help out with the family business, to carry on the lineage, and you needed to appease the, the gods of fertility. You wanted safety and protection from enemies. You needed to appease the, the gods of, of war. Right? Your well-being, your livelihood was dependent on how you interacted with these gods. And you see, it wasn't like Israel ever outrightly, blatantly rejected God. Right? They never said, stop being our God, and we don't want to be your people. In fact, they were pretty diligent, pretty intentional in attempting to worship and serve and get to know the one true God. They were learning to embrace him. They just couldn't let go of the other gods, too. When uh, my oldest daughter, Carly, was a baby, uh, she loved pacifiers. Pacifiers were her source of comfort security. When she was growing up, sleeping in a crib, we'd just throw like six or seven in there at night. I don't know if that's good parenting skills or not, but we would. Because in the middle of the night, when she'd wake up startled, she would just grab one of the passies, stick it in her mouth, and just put herself back to sleep. Well, eventually, as she got older, you know, we tend to try to wean her off the pacifiers that, you know, at the end of the day, pacifiers being your source of comfort and security would not be a good thing, going to junior high and high school and, and so on. So one day we made a deal with her, right? I think she was about two, somewhere around there, and we said, we'll get you a, a bounce house, because she really wanted this, a bounce house, a little mini indoor bounce house. We'll give you a bounce house in exchange for all your pacifiers. She agreed, no problem. So that day came, and she put all her pacifiers in the Ziploc bag. She sealed it up, and we made her walk to the front door, put the bag outside of the door, and in came the, the bounce house. We inflated it. We set it up, and she just absolutely loved it, just going to town on it, jumping up and down, laughing, giggling, getting all sweaty, and finally she got tired. She got off the bounce house, and she proceeded to walk straight to the front door open it up to, to look for her, her pacifiers. You see, as good as the, the bounce house was, as rewarding as it was, as much as she loved it, she still wanted her pacifiers too. And you see, Israel, they were getting to know Yahweh God. They saw the, the, the blessing that he provided they saw all that he offered, and they were learning to embrace it. They just couldn't let go of the other gods, too. 
In other words, what they believed, that life with Yahweh God was good. It was rewarding. It was worth it. But life could be a little tad bit better if they continued to worship and serve the other gods as well. You see, when it comes to, to us today, you see, the question we need to, to ask ourselves is, is God enough? In Hosea chapter 2, we get insight as to why Israel could never let go of these other gods. Why they continue to, to hold on, why they continue to worship and serve, even though it was idolatry and adultery against God. Look what God says to them in, in chapter 2, verse 2, using the, the metaphor as, as Gomer being Israel, the promiscuous wife. It says, rebuke your mother, rebuke her, for she is not my wife, and I am not her, her husband. Moving down to verse 5, it says, their mother has been unfaithful and has conceived them in disgrace. She said, I will go after my lovers, who give me my food and my water, my wool and my linen, my olive oil and my drink. Verse 8, she has not acknowledged that I was the one who gave her the grain, the new wine and oil, who lavished on her the silver and gold, which they use for, for all. You see, what God is saying is that, that what Israel failed to recognize, what they could not understand, was that every good thing in their life, every single blessing, all that they achieved, all that they attained, all that they had, it was from God and God alone. That it was nothing they did to deserve it, to merit, merit, merit it, to bring it on for themselves. It was all from God and only God. But you see, what, what Israel believed was that perhaps a lot of it was from God, but perhaps some of it was from the other gods too. You see, for us today, do we believe that every good thing we have is from God and God alone? Everything we've achieved, everything we've attained, everything we've accumulated, the life we get to experience, all of the good stuff, it's strictly from God and God alone. If someone were to ask us today, they were to ask you for your opinion, how do I live a, a good, fulfilling, satisfying life? How do I have a good life, a full life? I think most of us, and hopefully most of us, would start off with God and we'd say, yeah, you got to have a relationship with God. You got to trust God, love God, serve God, follow God. But how many of us would also add on additional things to? In other words, if you want a good life, you, you need to have a relationship with God. But your life could be a little better if you did these things too. God and education. God and a good career. God and financial security. 
God and basketball. God and biking. Now, these aren't bad things. Some of them are good things, especially biking. <laughs> and I'm not saying that all of these things are idols. I'm not saying that everything we add on to God and is an idol. But they could be. They could be. I mean, the goal of, of the message today is not to debate what's an idol and what's not an idol but to perhaps help us see that there are more idols that are closer to us than we think. You see, what are the things that, that we pursue? What are the things that we hold on to, to to give us comfort, to give us security, to give us a sense of well-being, livelihood? What are the things that only God can give that we chase after in, in other things? What are the things that would be hard to let go of if God asked us to let go of? The things that we could never live without. You see, are there things in our life that are possibly getting in the way of truly worshiping and serving the one true God? This past week, I was talking to a gentleman that I met at the park. He's a few years older than me runs his own business, he's a contractor. He has four kids, 14-year-old daughter, 13-year-old son, and a six and a four-year-old sons as well. He's also a volunteer in a, a missions agency whose primary focus is on the unreached nations, the 1040 window, countries where, where Christians are, are persecuted. In this past summer, he spent a couple weeks in Jordan. His 14-year-old daughter went to Lebanon. His 13-year-old son went to Turkey. His six-year-old son went to Uzbekistan, just with some chaperones. He said when his six-year-old son told him that he felt God calling him to, to go, his dad responded, yeah, but you still poop in your pants. Like, how are you, you going to do that? Son says, I'm working on it. I'll get, I'll get on it. And he did, and he went. And as he's telling me this, there's a part of me that is both feeling just in awe, genuinely intrigued, moved, touched by hearing all that God is doing. But there's a part of me that also felt really resistant. And it wasn't like he was telling me to go or trying to get me to go. He was just telling me about what God was doing in his life. But I could just feel this resistance as to why, I don't want to use the word never, but as to why I would never go, why I could never go, why I couldn't take my kids, and all the reasons why. See, are there things in our life that we are holding on to? That God, perhaps God is asking us to let go of, to loosen our grip on? Things that hinder our ability to worship and serve him alone. Now, as we said last week, the goal is not to, to feel guilty or ashamed, to beat ourselves up, but to come before God, to invite him to, to heal us, to restore us, to change us, so that we can be a people 
that worship and serve him with the kind of worship, the kind of honor that he deserves. So as we close our, our time this morning, we move back into a time of, of worship through singing and praise. Let us give God the worship that he deserves. And I know that we're, we're imperfect and we all struggle with these things, but the fact that God gives us grace, the fact that he extends mercy is all the reason more to give him worship and give him praise. So will you pray with me? Good and gracious Father, you are God and God alone. You alone are deserving of all of our worship, all of our praise, to love you with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, all our strength, God. And God, I know we, we fall short. I know that there are things in this world that we pursue after and chase after, things that we hold on to just a little too tightly. I know we have idols that we believe could give us a better life than if we simply pursued you and trusted you alone. God, it's really easy to look at Israel, to point the finger, to wonder why and how. But we do it ourselves. So God, we pray that you give us the spirit to change us, to transform us, to make us a people who are faithful and loyal and devoted and committed to you and you alone. God, we want to give you the worship and the praise that, that you deserve. So we thank you for every good and perfect gift that comes from above, that you bestow because of who you are, because of your grace, your generosity. And we say thank you. We praise you, we worship you. In Jesus' name.